Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives God's word to a hostile crowd. And what we see is that God is glorified through his witnesses who faithfully carry his word. Now we love the public reading of scripture at Grace, especially today, because I'm going to read all of Acts chapter 7, all 60 verses. Usually we stand, I'm going to ask you to remain seated today. Hear the word of God. I'll start at verse 1 of Acts chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, says God, And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so, Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt. And he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. 
And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled, became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua, 
when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushing together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for your glory that we see in it. Thank you for the gospel truth. It is drenched in. Lord, change our hearts, renew our spirits, direct us in the way you want us to go. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I've told all three hours that after reading that, I just want to say amen. Let's all go out and be alone with the Lord. The glory of God is seen in his word. His word is perfect. That was the only perfect part of the worship service when we hear the word of God. Even if we mispronounce it, even if we say the wrong thing, God knows and he's gonna use his word by his spirit in the lives of his people to change hearts. We firmly believe this. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter six, verses eight through 15 and we we see Stephen being described. He's being described as full of grace and power. That means that he 
was yielded to God, that he was controlled by God, that he was controlled by God's grace and power. And, and as it was revealed, you see so clearly his godly character. You see his gracious courage and, and a glorious countenance. His face is shining, just like the face of Moses when he came off the mountain. His face is shining with the glory of God. God's glory is on display. You see that God fills yielded believers with grace and power to serve his purposes. That's what God wants to do in your life. God wants to fill you with grace and power to fulfill his purposes. If you're a believer, that's it. That's what he wants to do. And it's going to come out in so many different ways. Wherever God sends you, whether it's to your family or to the largest corporation in the world, God wants to use you as a believer for his sovereign good pleasure and his purposes. Returning now to Stephen's defense and death and really his godly life and his courage and, and, and the glory of God are clearly seen in this. And we are looking at 60 verses today. There really are mountain peaks in this passage. There are four. They had told Stephen that he was against Moses and God. It's interesting they put Moses before God. You're against Moses, you're against God, you're against the law, you're against the temple. And really, those are the four mountain peaks of his sermon. No, I am not against God. I am not against Moses. He puts it right. He puts God first. I am not against God. I am not against Moses. I am not against the law, and I'm not against the temple. That's his sermon. And he's telling them over and over, you are wrong. You're the blasphemers. You've rejected all of God's sent deliverers that were pointing to Christ, the deliverer. At the time of Stephen's sermon, the church had shocked Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders had given the apostles strict orders not to teach any more in the name of Jesus. They had said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They were absolutely correct. That's what they were doing. They had filled the city with the teaching of Christ. They had obeyed God rather than men. They were passionate about it. They were obedient about it. They couldn't contain the gospel. This was weeks after the resurrection of Christ. Word is out everywhere that Jesus is alive, the Savior and the Lord. He's filling his followers with power. And it goes beyond the apostles. It goes throughout Jerusalem. And thousands are coming to faith in Christ. The Sanhedrin who sentenced Jesus to death hated that Jesus' name filled the city. You can imagine how that tore them up. The church had grown. It had started at 3,000. It had gone to 5,000. Upwards now to 10 to 20,000 people were daily meeting in the temple courts, were meeting from house to house. They were having constant ministry of the word and prayer and fellowship. They were sharing and caring in community. In chapter 6, we see that they pick seven servants full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to help widows in the church. There was a problem, there was a a complaint that arose, and so they picked seven noble men who would serve and who also could teach the word. Because God fills yielded believers with grace and power to serve his purposes and he is glorified through his witnesses who faithfully carry his word 
As a result of Stephen's spirit-filled ministry, they hatch all these false accusations against Stephen. Again, you're against Moses, you're against God, you're against the law, you're against the temple. And they bring him before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest says to him, Are these things so? Are these things true about you? Stephen's alone here. He has no attorney to dig up the facts and defend him. There is no jury to find out if he's innocent or guilty. And a lot of people say, well, Stephen is defending himself here, and he's not. He's defending the gospel. He is defending the true Christian faith. He is indicting his accusers. The Holy Spirit has filled him, and and he's bringing to mind so many scriptures. He's got scripture at his fingertips. It's just rolling off his tongue. He knows the word of God. And he is under a sentence of death here. And he humbly and boldly delivers the word of God to the Sanhedrin. He answers every charge. I'm not against God. I'm not against Moses. I'm not against the law. I'm not against the temple. He is a servant preacher. He gets their interest. He starts with the Old Testament with Jews. Very smart. He's talking to the Supreme Court of Israel. And he gives them a defense from Old Testament history. We know the Old Testament was opened up in Christ after the resurrection. Luke 24, Jesus is meeting two people on the road to Emmaus and he opens up their minds to understand the scriptures. He tells them all the things about himself from the Old Testament. Wouldn't you have loved to be there hearing that? Stephen defends the gospel, verses 1 through 53, and then we see his death, verses 54 to 60. His defense and his death. Let's start with the defense. First he says, I'm no blasphemer of God. You know, Luther said that the Old Testament was the cradle in which the Christ child was laid. And he gives a sermon here rooted in God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament. He starts the first 16 verses, I'm not a blasphemer of God. He starts right away and says, the God of glory. He's telling them, I'm not against God, I'm praising God. He is God all glorious. He's the God of glory. I'm praising Him. He is to be praised. And He ordained the destiny of Abraham's seed. He starts with Abraham. He talks about how Abraham is God's chosen man, how Israel is God's chosen people. And he talks about the patriarchs because God made a covenant with the patriarchs. God made a unilateral covenant that he wasn't going to break. It was all done by the God of glory. He talked about how Abraham trusted the word of God. Here is Stephen standing and delivering the word of God, trusting the word of God, and he's telling them about Abraham who trusted, as F.F. Bruce put it, the bare word of God. That's what you need to do today. Trust the bare word of God. F.F. Bruce said Abraham had no tangible object in which to trust. God had said you're not getting one inch of land as an inheritance i'm going to give it to your son and you're childless by the way he had to go on the bare word of god he had not one tangible object in which to trust and he believed the bare word of god and acted upon it that's what god wants you to do today in the midst of your struggle we all want to see proof Hebrews 11:6 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen Trust the bare word of God. Abraham did. And then Stephen jumps to Joseph. Right to Joseph. 
And he tells how Joseph was rejected and then rescued. How he, at the time, was a savior to Israel. He talks about Jacob in Egypt. And what he is doing is recounting very clearly the history of rejection of the Jews. For every deliverer God sent them, the Jews would reject them. They killed the prophets. He's saying, this is nothing new. This is what you keep doing. You kill the prophets. You stone those who were sent to you. He's saying, you're the real blasphemers because you're rejecting the Messiah. It was just like Joseph's brothers rejected him the first time. The second time, he came as their deliverer. So he tells them, I'm not against God. He's the God of glory. He's the covenant God. Then he tells them, secondly, I'm not against Moses. Verses 17 through 37. He says good things about Moses here. It's like Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these died in faith without receiving the promise. He is he's showing how Moses was a man of faith and how he was sarcastically rejected. Here's this God-sent deliverer, this defender, this peacemaker, this reconciler, and they reject him outright. And Stephen is saying the real blasphemers rejected Jesus the Messiah, just like those who rejected Moses the first time. They re- you rejected your God-sent Redeemer. You rejected the righteous one, Jesus. So 40 more years. 40 more years. He's out in the wilderness. Stephen brings them to Exodus chapter 3 and a burning bush where Moses is recommissioned. He hears the voice of God, the holy ground on which he stood because God's presence makes everywhere holy. God revealed himself to Moses there. God is faithful. He won't forget the covenant. But the people rejected Moses the first time. The second time he came as a deliverer. You see the pattern. He led them out of slavery. There's this consistent pattern of rejecting God's deliverers. Mistreating the servants God sent. Then he takes them to Deuteronomy 18.50. When Moses says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren he's talking about Jesus he is prophesying about the Messiah Peter preached this in Acts 2.22 and he said this every soul that doesn't listen to the prophet will die anyone who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross is not getting into heaven they're not going to be right with God they will not be justified Stephen is telling them, Moses prophesied the coming of Christ, the righteous one, that you rejected. He's saying, I didn't blaspheme God. I didn't blaspheme Moses. He's telling them, I believed in the one that Moses promised to come. And then he tells them, thirdly, I'm not opposed to the law. In fact, he tells them, I love the law. It's it's God's living oracles. Verses 38 to 43, it's the word of God, his commandments, his declarations of his will. He's taking them into Exodus 19 and following and the giving of the law, the receiving of the law. He's telling them it's living. It's not a dead letter. It's it's living. Just like Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Pierces it pierces it, it, it judges your, the thoughts and intentions of your heart God knows Jesus said not one letter not one stroke of the pen will pass away until all is fulfilled God is its author angels were mediators Moses was the recipient and it is alive and powerful 
This is what Stephen is saying. Verse 39 tells us, though, they, you refuse to listen. They, they turned their hearts back to Egypt. They said, where's Moses? Any of you suffering from short-term memory loss? All I can tell you is this is crazy short-term memory loss here. Where's Moses? And so now Stephen takes them to Exodus 32. They're worshiping a golden calf. And God is planning to mow them down. And Moses, their deliverer, intercedes for them. God, though, gives them over. It's like Romans 1. He gives them over in the lust of their hearts. Gives them over to their evil desires. And now Stephen, in verses 42 and 43, brings them to Amos 5. Amos 5, verses 25 to 27, about how they were worshiping beasts and planets. Beasts and planets. Many of the prophets wrote about that kind of idolatry. And that led them to Babylon. And Stephen is just telling them again and again, your history is is one of rejecting every deliverer God sent you, and every one of those deliverers was pointing to the deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, he tells them, I'm not against the temple. Verses 44 to 50. He starts, verse 44, with a tent of witness. Tabernacle of, of testimony. He takes them to 2 Samuel 7. David wanted to build God a house. Interesting, David gets one verse in this sermon. He says, Solomon built the house. Solomon obeyed God's instructions to build the house. And then he throws him for a complete loop. Verse 48. He says, the most high doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He's he's about to tell him, you're worshiping a building, not God. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne. He's telling them, God says, you can't build me a house. I made all of this. Don't elevate the temple, Stephen is saying. Takes him to 1 Kings 8. Solomon and the prophets protesting against confining God to a temple. How he is vastly beyond a building. By Stephen's sermon, they were worshiping the building. They were worshiping the ritual. They weren't worshiping God. We see a record over and over again of man's temples being destroyed by God. God's bigger than a building. The temple isn't holy. God is. The den of thieves would fall. But under the new covenant, they are to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what Stephen is saying. He worshiped the God of glory. The Sanhedrin worship a building. They were the blasphemers. They were the hypocrites. This is a masterful sermon that he is preaching. These mountain peaks of their history of complete rejection of everyone God sent to turn their eyes upon him away from themselves. So then in verses 51 to 53, he goes for the jugular, quite literally. (laughs) You stiff-necked people. He says, always resisting. Sometimes when I think of resisting, I think of, I'm going to stand my ground and not let you come further. That's not what this is. They are pushing against God. He says you're fighting against the Holy Spirit. You're always doing that. You're unbelievers, he's telling them. You're rejecting God. You are God's enemy. The Sanhedrin was God's enemy at this point. They killed the righteous one. They killed Jesus. 
So it's no wonder they wanted to kill him. You see, Stephen's death. Verse 54. They're enraged. They're gnashing their teeth at Stephen. That's the grinding of teeth in the Jewish culture was an expression of anger and rage. It was very common. The psalmist in Psalm 35 said, Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked. They gnashed their teeth at me. And he cries out to God. He says, Rescue my life from their ravages. And God is about to rescue Stephen's life from the Sanhedrin's ravages. Verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looks into heaven and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus in his prominent, exalted, sovereign position. Fulfilled Psalm 110, verse 1, that the apostles love so much. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But Jesus is standing, not sitting. Much has been made of this. Why was he standing? Was it to welcome Stephen into heaven? To make intercession for him? To help him? To witness in judgment against his murderers? To be his advocate in his defense? Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our advocate with the Father? It's probably all those things wrapped together. If you're a Christian today, I want you to rest assured on this. God is actively involved with your life. We like to say, God doesn't hear my prayers. God's not listening. God hasn't acted. And I want you to rest assured that Jesus is actively involved with your life. He is responding to your needs from his exalted position at the Father's right hand. He is your advocate. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Believe his promises. Cling to his word. You you can't carry the word unless you're clinging to it. Stephen says, I see heaven open. Jesus talked about seeing heaven open. About how the angels of God would be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite title for himself. In that that scene, he is is giving us an image of Jacob's ladder in Genesis, which basically shows open heaven, free access into heaven. Because when Jesus says it is finished at the cross, when he has paid humanity's Debt when, when he paid the price for our sin with his blood and he has completed his earthly ministry, he's buried, he dies, he rises again, we know that heaven is now open for all believers, free access into the presence of God. That's why you can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Because heaven is open now because of Jesus' finished work at the cross. He says he sees the Son of Man. 
the Son of Man. He's taking, he's taking us to Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. He is speaking of Jesus' kingdom. And if you're a believer, you're a part of his kingdom. You're under his reign. He's living within you. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways. Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head reigning sovereign and a sharp sickle in his hand with which to judge the nations all those who reject him Jesus used this title to refer to himself many times in the gospels Mark 8.31 is one example the son of man must suffer many things So Stephen sees the suffering, sovereign, exalted son of man whom the Jews he was preaching to killed. And he is standing at the right hand of the Father and he will come as their final judge. And the crowd gets violent. They rush at Stephen. They drag him out of the city. They kill him. There's no official trial. It is a lynching. They begin to stone him, verse 58, violating Roman law. You needed the governor's permission to do that. Dragged him out of the city. No vote on guilt or innocence. They think he blasphemed, and the punishment is stoning, according to Leviticus chapter 24, and so they go right to it. Stoning was supposed to be a last resort punishment for the offenders. This was their first resort. Every time I've thought about what it might have looked like to stone someone in the Bible times, what I always imagine is people with baseball-sized rocks or, or maybe softball-sized rock, grapefruit-sized rocks, and they're, they're just hurling them at someone as they're running out of town going, ah, you're throwing rocks at me. And then they kind of overtake them and just pummel them with all these stones. That's not quite the picture. The place of the stoning was about 12 feet deep. The first witness would push you in. If you died from the fall, that was it. But if you didn't die, they would keep going. If you landed on your stomach, they would turn you over on your back. And the second witness would take a stone and throw it on your heart. If you didn't die after that, then everyone would pick up a stone and throw it on you barbaric it was a last resort it was not the first resort but for the sanhedrin it was their knee-jerk reaction how how evil were their were their motives a bit of an aside comment verse 58 tells us the witnesses laid aside their clothes they need to take off their cloaks in order to throw the rocks more effectively they laid aside their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul that should ring a big bell. We're going to learn more about him when we get to chapter 9. He is the main character of the second half of Acts. He wrote most of the New Testament. Saul was his Hebrew name. 
Paul was his Roman name. He was born in Tarsus in Cilicia. He studied under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. He was young. So he wasn't on the Sanhedrin, but he was on a fast track for getting on the Sanhedrin. And just for a moment, let me, let me talk about Paul. You have to wonder who filled in the gaps on these details when Luke was writing. Who would have had a bird's eye view of what was going on? Who would have, who would have heard Stephen preaching and who would have seen him killed? Verse 1 of chapter 8 says that Saul was in hearty agreement with his death. He wanted Christians to die. You might look at someone and say they, they could never be a Christian. They're too bad, they're too depraved, they're too lost. And you should just be thanking Jesus that he didn't make us sovereign in salvation. Because we would have put the wrong people in heaven and the wrong people in hell. Because we look at the outward appearance and God knows the heart. Because God said to Saul, mine. And he knocked him down off his high horse and he saved him and the rest is history. Go back to verse 59. Stephen prays. He's praying. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. If you want to die well, pray that. Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus at the cross said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Quoting Psalm 31.5. Stephen knew he would immediately be in the presence of Jesus. He commits his spirit to Jesus. Lord Jesus, the same name he shares with the Father. Jesus is God. And then he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What compassion. Like Jesus said at the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Stephen, privileged to carry the word of God, dies. He's the first Christian martyr. Martyr means witness. He's now in glory. Jesus received him, answered his prayer. And may we be mindful of the things we see here. I want to point out four things we see here in this sermon of Stephen. The first is his heart. His heart. So tender, so trusting, so humble, calm in trial. Stephen knows his need of grace. Do you? They were filled with rage. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. What are you filled with? He was compassionate towards his killers. He prayed for them. One of them standing watching would have been Saul of Tarsus. God answered that prayer posthumously. Posthumously, however you say that. Number two, the power of God's word. You see, the power of God's word. The ministry of the word, that's what he's, he, verses one through 50, he's explaining the scriptures. Answers every false accusation. And then verses 51 through 53, he applies it. He exalts Jesus and exposes their sin. Now, we have the Bible. We have all 66 books. It's infallible. It's perfect. It's incapable of being wrong. It's always gonna tell you the truth. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. It's it's spoken from God. It's from God alone. 
and it's inerrant. It's, it's without error or fault in any of its teachings. It will never lead you astray. And we neglect it. We have multiple Bibles at our fingertips and we neglect it. We were talking a few weeks back about hearing and doing every day and I think we sometimes take the word read and just go, I read it, check, and when we don't think about it. The idea is that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and you love you love God and you want to have a, a close relationship with Him and you want to be growing in your relationship with Him and so you want to take the Word of God in and not just read and walk away, but think about it and let it sink into your soul and meditate upon it and, and put it up against what you're going, on, going through in life and see how the Word of God speaks to your situation, how the Gospel changed your situation, how it can transform it. That's what we're talking about here. You need to know the Word of God, not just read it. You have to read it to know it. You've got to hear it to know it. And then the Holy Spirit's going to bring to your mind what you know in situations to encourage you, to correct you, uh, for you to preach the gospel. I love how Stephen has the Word of God on the tip of his tongue, at his fingertips, ready, willing to stand for the truth. May God raise up an, a whole generation of Stephens who are ready to carry the word of God wherever God sends. Preaching is an alien activity. You got a sinful, frail human holding up the perfect word of God and trusting God to do what we could never do, change hearts. Paul called it the foolishness of preaching and we embrace that. And then we stand back in awe of God for what he does by his spirit through his word in the lives of his people. And even in the lives of his chosen ones, like Saul, who was just on his way to arrest Christians, and God arrested him. Jesus arrested him. By the way, I'm glad that we read 60 verses today. More of God's word, less of mine. Really quickly, two more things. The third that we see in this passage, the nature of faith and unbelief. The faith is seen so clearly in Stephen's life and in all those he recounted, the people of faith. It's a gift of God's grace. The unbelief is so heinous and, and, and clear to see in their idolatrous history when they kept making non-gods God. God said, you shall have no other gods before me, and they made a calf, and they sacrificed to it. They rejoiced in themselves. God delivered them over. Stephen is telling them all of history is pointing to Jesus and here is what you did with him. All the prophets died for this one truth. Stephen's going to die for this one truth. He did. If you're not a believer today, you need to think about this. Something has to be eternal. You are going to worship God or a non-God and you're going to have to assign to the non-God God's qualities god's characteristics god's attributes that's the heart of immorality that's the heart of idolatry you don't want to submit to god that's intellectual lunacy you are making a moral choice to reject god and you're responsible for your sin before god and he knows the hearts of all the nature of faith and of unbelief lie in the heart of god if you're a christian you know that jesus is clearly revealed in scripture and he died a substitutionary death shedding his blood on the cross and his blood is sufficient to cleanse. If you're a Christian, you know that. And you don't take it lightly and you don't trample on the grace of God. You live humbly before God because you know 
that Christ shed his blood so that you might live for him and not yourself. Last thing. And it's all the way through this. It's all the way through this sermon. It's the glorious presence of God. The glorious presence of God. We're seeing here that the presence of God is not restricted to a land or a building. You might be in a movable tent or a the land of Mesopotamia, the wilderness, or right where you are right this moment. The glory of God dwells where God is, and he dwells with his people. His presence makes things holy. And the God of glory displays his glory as he wills. Stephen's face like the face of an angel. God confirming his word through Stephen, and his face reflected the glory when God confirms his word through you as you carry his word where he leads you you will reflect the glory of God they won't see it on your face but they'll see it in your life and they'll see it in the gospel closing God sent patriarchs and prophets to carry his word they were rejected they were killed they were beat up Israel rejected them God sent Jesus the living word he was rejected and killed But the second time he comes, he will come as judge for all who reject him. But until then, God sends you. God sends you. If you're a believer, God's sending you. He's going to send you into your home, to your family, into your neighborhood, into your office, into your school, into the bank you go to, into the restaurants you frequent, into the sports fields you're at. And he's going to send you near and far to glorify him by bringing the gospel to people. If not for the shed blood of Christ, you would be forever condemned for your sins. But God thought otherwise, and in his amazing grace, God all-glorious for his sovereign good pleasure chose to show mercy and grace to you so that you, the guilty, could go free and then carry his word wherever he leads. You need to settle this today where you stand with what you've heard. You might be a believer who've been called by God to carry his word. And if you're a believer, you've been called by God to carry his word to a specific group of people or groups of people. It might be your family unit. It might be the largest corporation on earth. But maybe you've grown weary of bringing his word to a group of people that you see as stubborn or hard-hearted or they're resisting the word and they don't respond. I want you to be encouraged today. They haven't killed you yet. And maybe you're a believer who's sitting on the sidelines called to carry God's word and you're absolutely ignoring the call because you're too wrapped up in your own life. Are you inspired by Stephen's courage? If not, take their pulse and carry him out. They're dead. I went the other night to Eric Porter's graduation from the Sheriff's Academy and I'm telling you, every person in that room wanted a badge. We wanted to go protect and serve because we were so pumped up by the ceremony that we watched. I want you to be so encouraged by God's work in and through Stephen that you act upon it and have a resolve to carry his word wherever you're called. And the last thing is, maybe you're in the camp of those actively fighting against God. Maybe, maybe you are pushing and pushing against God. May God open up your heart and your, and your eyes to the gospel truth. You can yield now and be at peace with him. He is offering you terms of peace based on his shed blood 
at the cross and you are not worthy of it and you didn't earn it and he offers it to you by grace and if I were you I'd take that deal worship team is going to come back up let me say the closing words as they're walking not long before Stephen's defense and death there was another prisoner standing before the same court charged with similar crimes the high priest asked him are you the Messiah he answers I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and condemned to death. Little did they know that it was in the mind of God from before the foundation of the world to do that. Now Stephen is in the same place making the same claim on Jesus' behalf and he's claiming that the words Jesus spoke were not blasphemous but words of sober truth. And unless the Sanhedrin were ready to admit that they were totally wrong, they could do nothing else but find him guilty of blasphemy and kill him, just like they did Jesus. Because the Jews of that time were insisting in their national heritage, they were insisting in their building and their sacred institutions, and Stephen rightly saw Jesus on the throne of the universe. God wants you to see him the same way. Lord God, thank you that you are the, throne, uh, the, the sovereign Lord of the universe. Thank you that Jesus is sitting on the throne of the universe and, and that there is now immediate, continual access to you because of Jesus' shed blood. And that access, that relationship, that, that grace satisfies our souls like no human ritual ever could. So we worship Jesus, the sovereign Savior in whose name we pray, amen.